Are we alone in the universe or does the universe support life? Joining me when we come back is Dr. Zerwink. Stay tuned. average, every single star on average has a planet going around it, and about one-fifth or so of them have Earth-sized planets going around them. So just do the math. We're talking about out of a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, we're talking about billions of potential Earth-sized planets. And to believe that we're the only one is, I think, rather ridiculous given the odds. And how many galaxies are there? Within sight of the Hubble Space Telescope, there are about a hundred billion galaxies. So do the math. How many stars are there in the visible universe? A hundred billion galaxies times a hundred billion stars per galaxy. We're talking about a number beyond human imagination. And to believe that we're the only ones, I think, is, is rather ridiculous. Well, you guys heard it. Uh, uh, very well-known gentleman there. Uh, there are several who make the claim, astrophysicists, scientists, mathematicians, that we are not alone in the universe. Joining me today is an astrophysicist. Uh, if you guys have been paying attention to us on social media, uh, we were working with uh, Dr. Hugh Ross's team. Uh, but Dr. Ross could not make it. But nonetheless, we still have a well-capable astrophysicist, astrophysicist and scientist here to answer that question. Are we alone? I'm not going to belabor the time because I want him to have as much time as possible. Uh, uh, Dr. Zerwink, Jeff Zerwink, welcome to Truth Be Told, Hosea 4-6 Podcast. Well, thank you, Trevor. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. This is a, a fascinating topic in my assessment. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It is. I was I was sharing with Dr. Zerwing. I said, listen, um, I am blind when it comes to science. I'm not totally dumb, you know, but when it comes to his area, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have some pimp, uh, pen and paper out tonight uh, and taking notes. Um, but Dr. Zerwing, what do you... I get, let's just go ahead. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself first. I don't want to. I don't want to skip that part because that's important. Uh, your qualifications, what you do, and your academic interests, and whatever else you want us to, to know about you. Well, as you mentioned, I'm an astrophysicist, and uh, people ask what a physicist is, and a physicist is, in my assessment, is someone who goes out and says, "Hey, I see something. How does that work?" And then you just figure out how to do experiments and test and figure out whether your explanation is good or not. And so I get to do that looking out at telescopes out into the sky. I've worked on telescopes looking for gamma rays from distant objects, uh, things that are uh, galaxies that have massive black holes at the center of them. Uh, my current project that I'm working on at UCLA, or one of the current projects I'm working on, is a balloon experiment where we're trying to fly a balloon up above Antarctica looking for dark matter. And so just building experiments to do that is fascinating to me. Uh, and I'm also a Christian and I work for an organization at called Reasons to Believe that uh, looks at how do science and faith, Christianity particularly, work together. Because a lot of people think that science is antagonistic towards Christianity and Christianity, religious belief, and particularly Christianity, shuts down scientific advance. And just what I found is that they both actually work very well together. They go hand in hand. So I'm just lifelong scientist, a devoted Christian, and want to help others see just the majesty of God's creation and uh study it so that i understand it better as well man amen um and you said you're at ucla i do i work i work part-time at ucla uh okay. go over there do research it's a lot of fun i get to do computer programming and build components okay. and do some data analysis on some fascinating experiments nice nice all right um so audience uh last uh, we just did um an episode with Dr. Brian Hufflin, we looked at the, you know, UFOs, UAPs, ETIs, which is extraterrestrial intelligence. 
um, the whole gamut. Uh, we examined some footage from the whistleblower testimony to the House committee. I forget the exact name of the House committee. Um, but I think it's important uh, to have Dr. Zerwink with us because as Christians, we have to do a, to me, and I'm not trying to broad brush. We have to remember Paul and uh, Mars Hill in uh, the book of Acts. Um, one thing Paul didn't do is to straight tell those gentlemen that uh, what they or who they believe in is a demon. And one thing that some people would point out and maybe some proponents or naysayers rather uh, posers of, of the faith when it comes to this issue is you know say a Christian is that oh you guys demonize everything how are they demons and so how do you explain the concept that if these beings if what people are saying is in fact demons how do you explain that and especially when it comes to, you know, Mr. Grush, when he said, uh, I, I forget the the representative, um, her name that asked him about non-biological life um, is the U.S. in or, you know, life outside his plan is the government in possession of that. Um, you know, his answer could persuade some people to kind of their faith to shake. And so I think it's a good thing that we have. Uh, a scientist with us, an astrophysicist, astrophysicist with us. Hopefully, I'm not going to get tongue tied on that all night, all day. Um, to help walk us through the mechanics of that, and just saying, "Oh, it's a demon! It's a demon! It's a demon!" Well, why and how is a demon? Um, if they're non-material uh, beings, so to speak. Um, so, Doctor Zerwink, um, where's I guess? Does does the universe support life outside of Earth? Are we truly alone? Well, I would say that's a very complicated question. Okay. That, you know, there, there's a number of different things that weigh in on that. And I find that it's an interesting question from a theological perspective. And, I'll, you know, we can touch on that through the interview. But I, I do think... As a scientist, you know, your question of there, does the universe, is it is it capable of supporting life? I mean, well, we are here, so obviously our universe is capable of supporting life. But the real question in my mind, or, or the follow-up question to that is, why is this life here? Mm. And there's kind of two big ideas out there about how we're here. One is that this entire universe is somehow came into existence has governed by these remarkably consistent laws of physics that over time our universe has produced the elements and the that, that life requires it produces the planets that can host life it makes stars that feed the energy that life requires and that to the extent our universe can do that, it's just gonna produce life, that life just naturally flows out of that. But it's all very much the matter and the energy is the base level of what exists. That's the fundamental reality. Okay. That would be kind of the naturalist view. And then there's another view and it, and it plays out differently depending on exactly what your religious views are, but I'll describe the Christian view, is that there is a God who everything is dependent on him and he chose to create this universe and among the purposes for this universe is so that human life could be here and so he has fashioned things in a way so that the requirements for life are met and then he made sure there was a planet like earth and then he introduced life onto this planet and we are here now looking out at this creation that he made trying to understand it mm -hmm. why i bring that up is that we got to kind of evaluate, given the scenarios we're looking at, which of these two views best explains the data that we see. And we need to recognize that each of those views can bring an assumption into how we're looking at what we don't know out there. Because the short answer to is there life out there is that we just don't know. We have no data that says that there's life anywhere but beyond Earth although there may be life that has been sprinkled from Earth onto other planets in our solar system. 
And so we need to just be careful what sort of assumptions we're bringing into that because, uh, you know, uh, some have stated it this way, you know, say if, uh, if uh, aliens come and land on the White House lawn, mm -hmm. then all the major world religions will have to be rewritten. Well, right. that, that's, not, that's not really the case for Christianity, because as mm -hmm. I started researching this, what I find is that Christians for millennia have been thinking about this question. Right. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing. Uh, okay. I was saying it wouldn't change. It shouldn't change Christians' belief or Christianity itself. And that's exactly the sentiment that I found and the statement that I found is, I mean, you've got, for example, Galileo Galilei, one of the brightest scientists that has ever lived, put a lot of, you know, put astronomy kind of on the map as he started building telescopes and looking out into the heavens. He was of the opinion that God only created life here on earth. Okay. His contemporary, Johannes Kepler, looked out at the, you know, he did fascinating work in understanding how the motions of planets worked and getting his data and uh, understanding, like I said, how the motions of stuff worked out in the, in the, in the solar system. Mm -hmm. He was of the opinion that God made life on all the different bodies that were out there. So mm -hmm. here you've got two devout Christians studying God's creation, wanting to know the mind of God and to understand him better. And they have different views on whether there's life out there. And, and what I found in looking at that is that as Christians have thought about this, there's many ways where if we're the only life in the universe, that works very well with good, sound Christian theology. And if there's life found throughout the universe, that also fits in very comfortably with good, sound Christian theology. So I find it, it's a fascinating scientific question is, is there life out there? But I also find it a fascinating theological question. Is mm -hmm. there life out there? Did God only create us or did he create other life? I have no idea what the answer to that question is, but it's incredibly fun studying it, both from a theological and scientific perspective. What if what if what have you found in your studies? Um, it, you know, and sometimes you'll see on the news where. And forgive me if I'm pronouncing things wrong, uh, where NASA will have vehicles, um, not certain that the terminology they use for the vehicles where they uh where they land on let's say mars or this planet and they find water is that is that does that indicate that there is some type of life form there or is it just oh, okay there's water so so what <laughs> no that's a, that's a great question and this is where I think science has done us a great it's provided us a great bit of information and mm -hmm. in that uh you know if I were to ask you the question uh, yeah, I know you said you're a little bit of a science novice there, but, uh, you know, you know, there are different kinds of molecules. You get carbon dioxide, you've got water, you've got, uh, you know, all sorts of, you know, alcohols and various things like that. What would you think is the, the top three most abundant molecules in the universe? Ooh. I would I would say one I'm not a, I'm not a science. Fair point. I'm just curious what you would think there. I would I would I'm guessing carbon. It that's what I would say. I don't know the other. Forgive me. No, that's a fair point. And, and I would say like carbon because we're I, we're since we're made of carbon. Um, mm -hmm. and you know water. Obviously, you got to have a certain got to drink your water. Um, <laughs> So I'm guessing. I guess go ahead and give me my F for the day. <laughs> well, no, no. You're, you're actually your your guess about carbon. Carbon is one of the most abundant elements in the universe. The most okay. the most abundant element is hydrogen. Hydrogen, gotcha, gotcha. But when we when so I, I specifically asked the question, and it's a little bit of a tricky question about molecules because that's where you got two atoms stuck together of some sort. Okay. The most abundant is hydrogen, because hydrogen is one of those atoms that sticks together with itself. So it always comes in twos. So hydrogen is the most abundant molecule. The second most abundant is another form of hydrogen where a third proton comes into there. And so you've got three kind of hydrogen atoms stuck together. But the most abundant molecule beyond that, so it's hydrogen and it's normal form. Another form of hydrogen is the second most abundant. The third most abundant molecule in the universe is water. Mm. 
So when we're looking around our universe, it's not like water is hard to find. It's mm -hmm. everywhere. And so the fact that we find water on planets is not at all surprising to me because our universe, for whatever reason, seems designed to produce a lot of water. Do you think that, so um, with, I guess if you go with the fine tuning, um, you know, argument, which I like that. If you add that element of water throughout the universe, does that still support life here on Earth? Is that is that a necessity? Like if, you know, if maybe if a star is off by, you know, a centimeter such, it can mess life up. Is that is that necessary for us on Earth if they find water on other planets? That's just a coinky dink. Well, it is true that if you're going to have life, you've got to have liquid water because okay. Life, as much as people want to say, well, maybe there's some other way to do it. Life depends on carbon. Mm -hmm. And the only molecule, the only liquid that supports the biochemistry or the complexity of the complexity of chemistry that life requires is carbon. And the only liquid that allows that to happen is water. So you need carbon and you need water for life to exist. Now, the fact that we find carbon scattered throughout the universe is not surprising because our universe is designed to produce carbon. The fact that we found water scattered around the universe is also not surprising. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a planet, you got to have, or if you want to have a planet that has life, you've got to have an abundance of water. What's interesting is that when we look at our, the planets in our solar system, mm -hmm. we know that Earth, four and a half billion years old, is covered in liquid water. No controversy there. Mm -hmm. What is fascinating is that when we go look at Mars and we go look at Venus, that both of them probably started out with about as much water as Earth did. Oh, wow. But look at what happened to the water there. On Venus, because of how hot it is, because mm -hmm. of its slow rotation, and because of the solar wind that it's closer to the sun, all of Venus's water has been... Uh, dissociated and spread off into space. There's no longer any water on Venus. On Mars, the Mar Mars is a small enough planet that it can't hold on to liquid water. So a lot of its water is evaporated into space. Some of it's frozen underground still. So there is some of it there. But mm -hmm. if you've got these three planets that are all kind of you know, within that range that we would call habitable, where it's close enough where liquid water could exist, Mars had liquid water in the past, but it's effectively all gone now. Venus had in a bunch of water, whether it was liquids, a we don't have an answer to that, but all of the water from the planet is gone. The only planet that still has water on it well after it was formed was Earth. So it's not simply enough to say we've got to find water. We've mm -hmm. got to find water that can stick around in its liquid form for a long period of time. Because the fascinating part about all of that discussion is that Earth, you need to be in a certain temperature range to have liquid water. Mm -hmm. Earth has stayed in all of the things. The sun gets brighter. The uh, oceans have a bunch of oxygen put into them. Life comes around. Plate tectonics. All of this stuff happens that could catastrophically destroy Earth. And Earth has stayed within about a 20 degrees Celsius window for the last 4 billion years. That's wow. incredible. Oh, yeah. And so, yes, even though we're finding water on other places, what we find is not that the or the presence of water is not remarkable. The fact that Earth still has liquid water four and a half billion years after it's formed is what's remarkable because all of these incredible processes like plate tectonics and uh, changes in the atmosphere and the sun getting brighter and life developing on Earth, all of these have worked in concert to make sure that Earth has remained habitable, which makes sense because that's what Scripture says Earth was for. It was formed to be inhabited. And so we see evidence of that fine-tuning that Earth was formed to be inhabited. Right. And um, so as you, I just say, questions just coming to my mind. Do you think... <laughs> You think it's a wise idea that there's folks that want to get people to to Mars? Would that would Mars be able to support human life? Yes and no. Uh, so the the reason why I answer it that way is if you go out there and just say, okay, if we just take life out there and put it on Mars, will it survive? Mm -hmm. Mars is a pretty hostile environment right now. 
just one measure of that. Uh, we know that when we're hiking here on planet Earth, if you go up towards the top of Mount Everest, you get up above a range where just because there's not enough oxygen, advanced life starts to die. So humans start to die because there's not enough oxygen to support them up there. So we kind of go up, we take oxygen up, we can come back down or spend a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. The atmospheric pressure at the top of Mount Everest is about one third of what it is at sea level. Mm -hmm. If you now go to Mars, the atmospheric pressure on the surface of Mars is 50 times less than that. So there's just virtually no atmosphere there. So the question is, could it, you know, we as humans can take, like we can go up to the top of Mount Everest where we shouldn't be able to survive. We can do it because we have technology that allows us to do it. We can take technology to Mars that would allow us to survive there. I think that's entirely possible and that we'll probably do that. Mm -hmm. But if you ask the question, is Mars hospitable to life? The answer is no, it's very inhospitable to life. Got you. Got you. Um, yeah, that's, that, I mean, cause I know they said they want to, they want to try to get people there and you know, I'm just, I'm saying, if y'all want to go, go <laughs> fine here on earth. Um, what do you think is, is the strongest argument for people that do say that life is out there that there is you know this extraterrestrial intelligent life that is out there what do you think that the one thing that they have going for them might suggest that if anything i think the clip that you played up at front is is the strongest evidence for that i mean when we look at our universe the things that are necessary for life let's just stick with some of the basics we got to have hydrogen we've got to have carbon we've got to have oxygen we've got to have nitrogen are those are the most abundant elements nitrogen i think is number six but it's hydrogen helium which is non-reactive so we can kind of ignore that and then it's carbon and oxygen right after that and then nitrogen comes in shortly after so our universe though it's a little counterintuitive when you get into how you would expect to form heavier elements the fact that those heavier elements are formed in stars means that the most abundant elements in our universe are the ones that life requires. So it looks like our universe is designed to support life. When we look in our galaxy, we find that there's nine or eight planets around our sun, but we found thousands of planets around the stars that are close to us. And we expect there to be planets that are Earth-sized, where they're in their habitable zone, where liquid water could exist if it was on the surface of the planet. There are billions, like literally hundreds of billions of planets like that in our galaxy alone. And the fact that our universe produces the elements that life requires, it produces the places where life appear, or where it, at least to the extent we can measure, it produces the things that, that light or the, the environments where life could exist. That seems like a pretty compelling reason to think, okay, life might exist throughout the universe. I do just think we need to be careful. Are we smuggling a naturalistic presupposition in there or assumption in there where we think, well, because life developed here on Earth, where life, where things are conducive to life, life develops. I think you can make a pretty strong argument that the reason why life is here is because God designed it, made sure it happened here. And so then the question is, did God do that somewhere else? I, he may or may not have. But just because life flourishes here on Earth doesn't mean that life will flourish anywhere else in the universe. It may be that this is the only place, even if we can find other planets that kind of resemble Earth in a lot of ways, that doesn't mean life will exist there. Right. So Earth is strategically placed but which I'm gonna go and say by God for the survival or the ongoing of mankind. I think you can make a really strong argument that that's the case. That it's not that well, Earth is just the right distance and water forms, and where you get water and planets like this, life's gonna flourish. I think mm -hmm. when you look at the origin of life, there's a lot of big problems there that indicate that not not from our lack of knowledge, but what we know about what would have to happen for the origin of life, 
that indicates that that's a very rare and finely tuned process. And so, uh, again, just because there's a lot of planets and our universe produces the elements for life doesn't mean that life's going to arise. There's, there's other things that we need to answer there. But you ask the question, what do you think, what do I think is the strongest evidence? I think the fact mm -hmm. that there are so many planets and the building blocks of life are so abundant given the way our universe works, I think that's a, that's a very a very compelling reason to think it's reasonable that there might be life out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what do you, so, okay. I think that that'd be cool. Cause it's, I mean, it's like, I mean, you get, you get into the, how many galaxies is all galaxies. There are planets, right? I think it's where a lot of people have kind of gone this route of, well, I mean, we haven't explored them all. We haven't visited them all. Um, you know, how do we not know that there's something on there? But then and this is what kind of spins me. Well, they're so they're so far advanced on on these planets. My thing is, well, how long have they been in existence compared to, you know, the Milky Way galaxy and, you know, Earth itself? Um, I don't know. It kind of sounds like a little elementary question. but. <laughs> I think it's it's you know, and then you look at okay, let's say there are these what people are reporting these you know flying craft UAPs. I mean, it, the terminology changes almost every couple <laughs> years. I mean, I tell people just pay attention to the language; they're gonna tell you what they are without telling you. Um, <clears throat> if something's flying at that rate of speed in our atmosphere, okay, you see like a you know a falling star, it burns up. Mm -hmm. You know, how are these things, if they're plausible, just kind of shifting the, the subject, I guess, if we, if you know, entertaining, if these beings are, if there is life and they're visiting here, how are they not burning up when they're coming into our atmosphere, is my question. No, that's a good question. And and I'm going to come, if I could kind of uh, maybe weigh in on the, there's a- Yeah, there's sure. A, Whatever way you want to, you, you're the expert, we help you. No, no, I'm just going to follow it along there because there was a hop made from, well, okay, if we've been here for a while, uh -huh. what sort of technology might they have that allows? And I think that it misses that the, that the, the possibility of moving through the universe is incredibly challenging. I mean, mm -hmm. our our cinematic universes have that happening all the time. I mean, whether you go want to go with Marvel, whether you want to go with Star Wars, go with Star Trek. There's other ones out there. Babylon Five. There's uh, you know, I mean, you could Battlestar Galactica. There's all sorts of er, places where traveling through space is. Of course, we figure out how to do that. But I do think it's worth taking a little bit of time just to ask the questions, what, what's involved in that? Because what often gets missed is just how big our universe is and how hostile to life space is. And, and I'll give you two examples of that. One is that when we ask the question, you know, we've launched various spacecraft out, out into space. And I think, uh, you know, the Pioneer 10 and 11, uh, there's Voyager 1 and 2, and these things are moving very rapidly on the order of like 67,000 miles an hour. I mean, they're, they're just Ooh. hauling through space. Jeez Louise. Yeah, they're going along pretty fast. <laughs> now, you think, wow, how could they be going that fast? You ask the question, how long will it take one of those craft to get closer to another star than to the sun? So travel half the distance to another star. Mm -hmm. The answer to that question is 40,000 years. Whoa, man. Exactly. Whoa. Now, think what has to happen for that to work. So th these are small craft. Not, I mean, you got like one, maybe two people in there that you could do tops. And mm -hmm. that's as fast as we can do with our current technology. So you have to be able, these people are going to die. So in order to be able to get somewhere, you have to move a community that could sustain itself through space for 40,000 years. There has not been any group of people on earth that have maintained a common purpose for remotely close to that long. And so, yeah, there, there are just a whole lot of things that argue, well, that at least given what we know, it's impossible to travel between stars. 
Now, you could go along and say, well, what happens? It's possible we could travel much faster. I agree. We could travel, let's say, maybe a tenth the speed of light. Now that cuts the time down. Even moving at a tenth the speed of light, it would take 40 years to get to the next star. Whoa. So we're still incredible amounts of time that we're talking about. But the moment you start asking the question, how much energy does it cost to accelerate something up to a tenth the speed of light? Well, if you take mm -hmm. a 500 kilogram ship, which is a ship with one person, maybe two people in it, maybe three people, let's just be generous there. It takes roughly an equivalent amount of energy to the U.S. energy budget for a year to do that. Mm. So take mm. all of the lights, all of the gas, all the power, everything we use, it's about, it's it's in the ballpark of that amount of energy. And when you're traveling that fast, if you happen to run into anything, it was going to cause an immense amount of damage to your ship because the amount of energy, even just a small grain of sand, if you happen to encounter it as you're traveling through space, it will just tear through your ship and cause catastrophic damage. So you can see that traveling amongst the stars, though we do it so readily in our movies, is really a daunting task, and it may well be an impossible task. So that, to me, says anytime we're thinking about, are these ships from another civilization out around another planet, around another star, I'm like, okay, think of the technology that has to be there. These people, these beings have to be able to traverse great distances with enormous amounts of energy not be killed by anything that might be they happen to bump into as they're crossing these incredibly large distances and now they get into our atmosphere and somehow we're able to take a picture of them right you know we just need to realize the implausibility of traveling through space it may be that it's possible but it is incredibly difficult if not impossible and coupled in with that as you're traveling through our galaxy our earth here has this very nice amenable environment to life because we have such a lovely atmosphere above us that filters out this incredibly damaging radiation in fact if you take a detector up on top of the planet up on top mm -hmm. of the atmosphere that's just uh, three feet by three feet on a side, you're going to get a thousand cosmic rays per second hitting that. And these cosmic rays will do more damage than any x-rays will ever do to your body. The radiation environment in space is very detrimental. In fact, just traveling to Mars over the span of two years, you're exposed to about one-fifth of a lethal dose of radiation. Mm. So now put that into 40 years as you're traveling across space. Right. You, you begin to see the challenges of any sort of space travel. And how difficult would that be if, you know, coming to the asteroid belt? Because that's pretty, I you know, I I don't know the, the dimensions, but I mean, you know, you would have to make it through that, that belt of asteroids that, you know, and try not to hit one of them or get hit by one of them. <laughs> If no, that, you're that's a fair, fast, you know. Yeah, no, that's a fair point, and I think you could say, well, okay, we'll we'll make sure we come in from the top of, the, you know, if you look at the the planet or our our solar system, all the planets uh -huh. orbit in a plane, and so do all those asteroids. You can say, all right, we're going to kind of come in from the top, and so we can avoid it that way. So that I mean, I could see relatively straightforward ways of being able to navigate things like that. But you you begin to start to think, well, there's all these things you got to be able to deal with. It's not nearly as easy as our uh, movies make it seem to be. Yeah. Um, so what do you? So what are your thoughts when you hear when you hear these uh, whistleblowers or you know other people that may come out and say that you know you know we got stuff on film and we have evidence, crashed, recovered evidence of spaceships. Yeah, that's, that's uh, as I thought about that, you know, okay, so you got to look at what are the possibilities that might explain that data. One, I haven't seen any debris from a crashed ship. I've not seen any biological material from 
any alien civilizations. And to my knowledge, nobody's ever produced any of that in any sort of studyable way. I mean, I, I, I do hear people saying, you know, I mean, I, if I remember correctly, in these latest hearings, there are people who said, I've witnessed programs, I saw it in there. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what to think of that because I don't know the people, but I do what I, I can only go on the data that I have at hand. And nobody in the US or any other country that I'm aware of has ever produced any sort of, here's a ship that we found, here's a piece of a ship, or here's a leg or an arm or a tentacle or an antenna or whatever. I mean, any sort of actual measurable evidence that would allow us to actually go investigate and see, is this actually Earth life or is this life from somewhere else? Is this a craft that was built on Earth or is this a craft that was built from somewhere else? So absent that, I'm left to go and say, all right, what are the possible explanations for the data? And the data is there are people who have said, I've seen these things and there are technology like cameras and radar that have measurable signatures of something there. What's the best explanation for that data? Well, one, okay, so one possible explanation is maybe there's some sort of alien craft that's come here. That's one explanation. Another explanation that makes pretty good sense to me is uh, some sort of military development. I mean, mm -hmm. if I were running the U.S. military program, given that the more you can sense what's going on, the better you can attack and strategize and defend yourself. One of the things I would try and develop is, is there ways I can do things to confuse or bluff or deceive my, my opponent's technology? Right. So, so that's a possible explanation that maybe there's either U.S. or some foreign uh, government that is developing technology that will put decoys and fuel things up there. And so now, now, so now I don't have, is it aliens or not? And I just have to evaluate there. I'm like, okay, I've got two possible scenarios or two possible models for explaining this, mm -hmm. which does the data fit better in? The fact that often these descriptions and even the, the stuff that shows up on the, the videos or the radar very often these things violate the laws of physics. Right. So they that's the, that's the one that, and I, you know, that's the one, if you could touch on that about moving at a, you know, going 15,000 miles per hour, dead stop and in a right turn, this has been reported by not only military, but even civilians and even civilian police officers, security at, at, at military bases I've seen have reported these craft flying at it, at a, you know, like, crazy amounts of speed coming to a dead stop could you touch on that after you finish i'm sorry for cutting you off but i just want no, to throw no. that in there for you <laughs> well no that, so so then you gotta so now you see this phenomena where again you're looking at the recording on the technology and sometimes you've got a picture looking thing sometimes you have a blip on a radar screen you mm -hmm. know you've got to look at what you you've got to ask the question what are you seeing there Anytime you introduce an instrument, there are always instrumental artifacts of things. And so one of the questions I would ask, and, and I, I don't know the answer to this because I've never been able to just go in and investigate them. Is this an instrumental artifact? Uh, you know, again, if somebody is trying to fool our technology, that's the place where you start, That as, as I would design that, I would go look for where do these things begin to behave a little weird and can I exploit that to make something that looks convincing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I've seen a number of things that they put out or you know, that NASA and our government have put out over the last couple of years where they've said, hey, we've got evidence of UAPs and of, I don't know that the government has ever said extraterrestrials, but you know, where they're starting to put these things out. And one of the things I find interesting in this discussion is that the tech what we see seems to be kind of at the borderline of our technology. Uh, if you go back to the 70s, all of the things were very, just kind of these blurry blobs. It was hard to get much definition. Well, our mm -hmm. technology is better, so we get more definition, but it's, it's, it's just difficult to, to look at that and say, oh yes, that's clearly an alien spacecraft. It's 
just hard to assess what there's going on there. And so in my, as I've looked at the various things, I mean, there are the, you know, the, the Tic Tac video and various things out there. To me, the better explanation is that these are some sort of odd equipment phenomena, whether introduced by foreign technology or our technology to see how well it works or just mm -hmm. artifacts of the data. That's my, that's, to me, that explanation makes the most sense because the alternative is I've got this civilization that is somehow able to build a craft that could come across vast swaths of space, not be destroyed by the harmful radiation that's out there, not be destroyed by bumping into anything at incredible speeds, navigate into our solar system, into our planet, and somehow we're able to capture, capture videos of them. And you know, the, the technology that it would allow a civilization to come here, quite honestly, is technology that would allow them to run o overrun our planet. And right, so right. The, the, the aliens traveling here has a lot of problems technologically and psychologically to provide that explanation. Whereas I think a military explanation or maybe even a, you know, kind of spiritual, that there may be demonic activity, something like that, that there are other explanations that seem more plausible. I'm open to being convinced otherwise. I just haven't seen any data that makes me think that either kind of a demonic spiritual explanation or a uh, military type explanation doesn't account for most everything that we've seen. Yeah. You know, I was, when I was talking with um, Dr. Brian Huffling, I was saying, I think, you know, and I'm, I, I kind of picked this as a um, a side academic hobby to study, um, and it kind of when it when it comes in relation to my dissertation, as what it stands now, we'll see. Um, you know, with the demonic aspect, is if this is which I do believe that, you know, what people, I mean, if you have the world's top military. And you try and let's say if you do have some stuff, you know, because obviously they keep stuff from each other. I mean, even in the uh, that congressional or that House committee hearing, uh, one of the the representatives said that even the Pentagon, you know, acts kind of dumbfounded when it comes to their own financial report. He was like, they're missing six billion dollars almost every year they get audited. So somebody's keeping something from somebody else. Uh, even Stephen Greer, he said in a clip, um, which was, I think was on Vlad TV's podcast. He was talking about, um, uh, when Bill Clinton came first in office, Stephen Greer just graduated. I think he graduated from UNC with his PhD and whatever his scientific discipline is that he went to the white house and had to, um, uh, brief, uh, was it uh, Bill Clinton and his uh, the head of the CIA on this phenomenon? And both gentlemen said that they were denied certain clearances when it came to the topic of, you know, UFOs and probably probably more so UFOs. I don't know about extraterrestrial life. Um, but with me, I said, I mean, if you have a top the world's top military and you know you want to test it to see how you know your air force responds your navy responds yeah. and whomever else responds then you might test it out on your own people without causing or not trying to cause harm um i don't think do you think we give human imagination enough credit so what do you mean by that question so i think, I think underestimated that at times but Right. I think that's why. So, I mean, you have people when it comes to <laughs> you, the, the air quote, ancient astronaut theory and, 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 uh, pyramids. Oh, it's uh it was some ancient aliens that built that. We can't figure out how they built that. How they got the stones up there. Blah, 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 blah. Um, Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, um, we don't give, you know, human ingenuity enough credit when it comes to things of that nature. Um, yeah. 
I think it's kind of where I'm going with that that question of you know these type of phenomena because even I think German not German Nazis were working on something similar where these type of shapes. I think they were trying to reverse engineer something with had something had to do with nuclear power if I'm not mistaken, and trying to find some type of craft that will allow, that's more quieter and and whatever dealing with aerodynamics. Um, I just, uh, and so let me go back to my point without getting off top. I think that the enemy can use things like this to try to deceive as many people as they can, um, or try to try to cause people to fear, try to cause people to leave. You know, I'm like, and going back to where you were talking about earlier, the travel, the, the amount of years and the rate of speed. You're telling me you would come that far just to tell somebody that their belief religiously is wrong <laughs> and you're going to pick out a couple few people out of the billions of people on the planet to tell them that they're special. <laughs> That's where I kind of get to like, you know, maybe it's a combination of both in my opinion. Um, but let me, do you, do you think that we, we kind of underestimate our ability to come up with the human ability to come up with these type of crafts and the, uh, their ability to maneuver what they want to do. I do think that there's a tendency to underestimate the ingenuity of the human mind. And, and, you know, your description about the pyramid, you're bringing up of the pyramids and other things like that. To me, what, as I look at that, the difference between the Egyptians and us is not that we're smarter. It's that we just have a longer baseline of building. We're building off of a bigger foundation because we've had more chance to work on it. But the ingenuity and the engineering and the determination and the creativity to make all that happen. None of that surprises me because that's the sort of stuff we're still doing today. And so to now ask the question, are humans able to come up with ways to spoof radar systems or even fo fo photographical systems and make something appear that's there that's not there. That doesn't surprise me at all. Now, if you're asking, can we build craft that actually maneuver this way? That's a different question because now we're talking about things that are pushing the boundaries of what physics allows. And maybe even talking about things that are impossible. I mean, you know, to, to if, if you put someone, any sort of biological organism in a craft that is going 15,000 miles an hour and bring it to an absolute stop, whatever organism you're talking about, unless it's a single-celled organism, is going to die. It just, the, the, the biological structure cannot withstand those forces. That's just an incredible force. Now, we, I mean, you know, you, you say, well, okay, could we not be creative and come up with that? I mean, well, we've been able to come up with things that allow people driving cars going 200 miles an hour to hit walls and stop. And But that, you know, 200 miles an hour to 15,000 miles an hour is a huge jump. And, you know, it's, it's just... It's there's part of that that I think we do underestimate how ingenious we are and, and how creative we are. But I also think we have a tendency to overestimate how much technology we're going to develop. And where you're talking about things that are so far beyond what we can do. And, and I'm not talking about, okay, so we've built an airplane that can do this. I'm talking about things that compared to what we can do are kind of at the boundaries of the laws of physics. That sort of stuff, you can't keep quiet from the scientific community. Somebody out there is going to hear about that. It's going to get out and get known just because you can't keep the, the amount of intellectual firepower it takes to develop that is going to be too large of a group of people to keep quiet. Because it's just too much of a breakthrough. I, you know, there, there's too much conspiracy that would be involved to say that we've actually built craft that are capable of that. I think that's kind of the point I'm trying to make there. Okay. Okay. And when you talk about, um, you know, the that that type of ingenuity, um, 
it just came out. I think it just came out. Yeah, it came out to, to August 29th. Um, so NASA is actually exploring a passenger jet that can go, f- that will go from either either point of New York to London, and uh, get you there in 90 minutes. That's that's mm-hmm. quick. Yes, so that's <laughs> very quick. Um, not I don't know if I get on that flight, but uh. <laughs> Hey, you might might want to go to doc and get checked out before you before you uh, do if that ever comes to fruition. Um, but yeah, that that's that's good. I think um, I don't, I think yeah I think that it you know if you look at and I wanted to kind of stick on the scientific topic on the night or this evening, whatever time you listen to it, um, to give the Christian talking points as to if you're talking to a non-believer or if you're talking to someone who has gone down a rabbit trail and you know believes in these things almost like it is a religion which i mean it can turn into that way if you're not careful or let's say if you if you're following after your stephen greers um i think it's tom DeLong that works with him too i think tom DeLong it was the interview i gotta find that but Tom DeLong even came out and said, and then I think it's Tom DeLong, I think whatever the guy is from Blink 182 or the drummer or whoever that went on this path, uh, he was talking about when you get into the uh, the anatomy of these beings, not dealing with the craft anymore, but actual aliens, um, you know, are these non-human entities that he was saying they're more in par with ancient gods, um, demons, if you will. He said, if you go on a Christian aspect, it'd be, it'll be demons. Um, and that's where you, not that he is, is a credible, um, scientist or scholar, uh, but one who has gone down that road. But he, even if you look at men and women, again, going back to what we talked about with Dr. Huffman, if you look at these men and women who do not have any skin in the game when it comes to religious beliefs that have studied this subject, they will say that, well, one of them, I think it's Jacques Vallée, Jacques Vallée, um, hmm. who said they're more in par with type of fairies, you know, the, that type of belief, inter, interdimensional beings, they, they having that ability. What do you, let me ask you this, I know we got to wrap up soon. What do you think about the argument that these are time travelers? As in, like normal beings, but just can travel through time. Right, travel through their, like some. I've heard some have said they're, they're from the. They might be from the future, traveling through some type of, maybe shot through the wormhole or some type of. Um, I don't know the right terminology to use, but they're yeah. kind of bringing some type of matter or something with them on the way. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, the interdimensional argument. Um. I think Brush said something about you have to get into the science aspect of that, and he kind of just shut it down real quick. I would be very skeptical of that. Just so, so take the description I talk about, just what it takes to travel through space. Mm-hmm. That's an incredibly difficult, hostile, it may not even be possible type thing. Now, we can at least see how to travel through space. The question is, can we build the technology that allows us to do it? The moment you start talking about traveling backwards in time or somehow going from one time to another, that's a whole different ballgame. You're talking about changing the fabric of space-time there. And we, again, know the kind of uh energies required to do that and again let me just give a a quick picture of that that we over the last 10 years have started we've we by scientists or i'm talking by scientists when i use the term we there have Mm -hmm. recently been able to detect gravitational waves which are ripples in the fabric of space time and you think okay that's pretty cool i mean it is very cool but what we are measuring is something that a displacement here on Earth, it's on the order of the size, it's actually smaller than the size of a proton. And it takes us detectors that are miles long to be able to measure that. So we're detecting over a mile long distance, we're detecting changes of fractions of the size of a proton. Mm-hmm. Now, what we can do though is calculate, so okay, 
we found these gravitational waves. We can now detect what sort of objects they came from. And this is types, typical types of things are you've got a, a star that's the, or a black hole that is the mass, 30 times the mass of the sun, another one that's 30 times the mass of the sun. They collide and you end up with something that's about 57 times the mass of the sun, or you, you lose three times the mass of the sun goes into causing these very minute ripples that we measure. Now, that means that the energy of the entire, that three times the mass of the sun is converted into energy e equals mc squared, which is an incredible amount of energy to make this really tiny ripple that travels through space. Now, to travel through time, we've got to be able to not only do something like that, we've got to be able to rip the fabric of space-time, bend it around and connect it somewhere else. That sort of technology, we can't rule out that it's possible, mm -hmm. but if you thought traveling through space was hard, you don't know nothing compared to traveling through time. I think it's probably impossible to do that. So the moment you theorize that these are just people from the future or beings from the future traveling back, as skeptical as I am of beings that just can travel through space, I'm skeptical cubed, if not more, when you start talking about time travelers, not based on anything other than what I know about the science and what science says can happen in our universe. And so, uh, you know, I think it's far more likely, uh, again, you know, the, the question is not, well, can we evaluate whether this is some sort of interdimensional or time traveler or whatever? The question is, is that a better explanation or is a government doing something or is some sort of spiritual realm? Which of those three is the most likely or the best explanation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and again, I just kind of come down to, I think it's far easier to fool people into thinking they're aliens than they're actually being aliens. Right. Well, let, well let's conclude. Let's conclude on that, uh, on those, those three compartments. Right now, as you know, if, if you're giving a lecture to whomever, wherever, and uh, you know, they ask you, okay, uh, Dr. Zerwink, what is this phenomenon? What are we seeing? What are we, we're, we're hearing about in the news? What is this? I would say that it is interesting phenomena on our detectors that until they show me something that there's an actual craft or an actual organism or piece of something like that, that they're interesting stories that people are telling. And I think the best explanation is that most of that's probably going to be military intelligence government exchange. And I think there's a good possibility that there's some aspect of that again, because it's working on deception, that there is some spiritual activity, some demonic activity there, because that's, if the Christian scriptures are correct, the Christian Bible is correct, there is an adversary, there's a, a an angelic being or a demonic being, and the primary mode of operation is deception. And yes. so deceiving people is what that being is about. And what a great, you know, how, how especially in today's society the moment we, we're kind of primed to think that there are alien beings out there what a great mechanism of deceiving people is to show them evidence that would give them ways so that they think the rational explanation is that these are other beings that's why i think it's so important to look at the three options and ask which of these is best because if you're not addressing the challenges of how do you get through space I still just can't get around that when, if they're traveling, if these are beings that are technologically advanced enough to travel through space, how do they crash on Earth? That just seems a little ridiculous to me. How do they elude our detection except for these occasional glimpses that we have? Their technology has got to be so far beyond ours, it's, it's just, I struggle to figure out how would we be able to detect them. I think it's far more likely that these are either natural phenomena that we haven't quite understood, instrumental malfunctions or oddities that we don't understand, or actual military technology that we that can make things appear there that aren't there. I think that's the best explanation. And so until somebody shows me compelling data otherwise, that's kind of the that's the argument I would make.
Um, well, that we're we're out of time. We got to hit the horn, and we out of time on the day. Um, Doctor Doctor Zerwink, I want to say thank you so much for coming by and talking to us on the day. Um, I think you have done a wonderful job of helping people to see how strategic God is um, through the design of the universe, um, how unique we are, uh, you know, with our planet and, and, and what God has done in his marvelous creation, uh, if you would. Um, and then also giving believers in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians, when it comes to this subject, uh, one that it doesn't affect our theology. Y'all have heard several of my guests, even myself say this on certain, um, a few of our episodes that this does not, and it should not affect your theological beliefs whatsoever. If there was um, intelligent life or, you know, why can't we be intelligent life? If there was other life in the universe, um, so thank you again for reiterating that to the audience. And thank you so much for mapping the universe out, um, being fair in your assessment. Um, I, I, I truly appreciate it. And you also, you just had a book come out, correct? I have had some books come out and I, I, okay. I appreciate your, uh, your, your praise there. It's, it's encouraging. And I, I would say if this has been interesting, work for an organization called Reasons to Believe. Go to reasons.org. There's a lot more resources. But specifically, I did write a book about whether there's life out there. It's called Is There Life Out There? that addresses the scientific stuff we've talked about. I even delve into the multiverse a little bit there. And I also talk about how would this affect Christianity? And I, I wholeheartedly concur with your point that this is not something, even if we find life out there, that's not something that should trouble the Christian. It is wouldn't surprise me at all to find that God's created life out there. And that would be fascinating for us to explore. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, what I'll do is um, I'll go ahead and list the. Uh, you can is now. Let me ask you because some of some of my guests they have personal websites and uh, proceeds from their book. If someone does buy the book or you know merchandise, it goes towards a charitable donation. If you would, it goes to something that they're doing charitable wise versus Amazon. Is do you have anything like that? Uh, anything you buy, my books, all that sort of stuff, the proceeds go to the ministry I work for. So I, I don't okay. actually get a dime out of that, but uh, that's part of why I don't mind promoting it. But more than that, I just think it's really helpful information and resources to equip Christians to be able to engage this topic. So yeah, if you can purchase purchase it from our site, that's better than Amazon because we get a little more of the profit. But uh, again, I think the book is just really useful. So check out our resources. And that's from reasons to believe.org, correct? It's actually just reasons.org. Reasons, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. All right, and what I'll do is I'll I'll link that below. So what you guys can do, just look down below, like I always have, under uh, you know, right, you know, right up a little something by episode. Keep scrolling down, and you'll find that link to where you can go and get that book. Um, and then you know, pastors as well. I know I have some pastors that listen to. We talked about with Doctor Huffman that this is this is probably going to be a conversation that ensues with your younger people um, because they're exposed to so much um, and so don't be afraid to have these conversations don't be afraid to reach out to uh, to reasons and ask one of their uh, astrophysicists I know they have a number of scholars on staff that can handle this um, I list all contact information as long as it is permissible by the guests to do so if you want to get in contact with them, and that's just emails. It's no phone numbers or nothing like that. We're just doing emails because <laughs> the world we live in today is quite crazy. Um, and filled with some people that need some prayer and, and some good counseling. So, um, but, uh, you know, as long as it's okay, then uh, I, will, I will list that information below. And uh, you guys can get in contact, ask whatever questions you need to ask. I know when I had, are you familiar with Joseph Jordan? I am not familiar with that person. Okay, so he was, uh, I don't know if he's still with MUFON or not, but uh, Joe Jordan, he has a, a wonderful book out, uh, Piercing the Cosmic Veil. So he has a lot of testimonies where he went and investigated the contact aspect of people that 
you know, supposedly came in contact with UFO or with aliens. And some of the cases, you know, you would classify that as a possession. Um, hmm. But uh, uh, he told me he had several people reach out to him. Anytime he does an episode of, of recording um, with a podcast, he always has people to reach out uh, to him to talk about their experiences. Um, but again, I mean, guys, don't do anything foolish. Scripture speaks against occult practices. Uh, you know, don't follow after your Stephen Greers and other people to tell you you can channel these things with your mind because you're opening yourself up to something you do not want. <laughs> All right. So, but hey, listen, we are out of time. I got to go. That's the music. Uh, Dr. Zerwing has to go. We're trying to enjoy the rest of our day. I want y'all to enjoy the rest of the day. God bless you. God keep you. May heaven smile upon you. Pray for me. And I'm praying for y'all. God bless you. And we'll see you on the next time. All right. Peace.